female genocide against witches, you know, teaches grandmothers and mothers to shame their children for the alleged purpose of keeping them safe from the patriarchy, but it, the effect is um, that it just reinforces it or it, they become, they become the labor force of the patriarchy, you know. Um, and so then the, and then the men only have to do it in, in really dire situations. They must, you know, beat you because the women are doing this kind of soft labor um, to keep you in your place. Welcome to the Wash Your Mouth Out podcast, power, pleasure, and parenting. We are stigma-smashing feminist parents creating a new narrative. Put in your earbuds. This is for you only. This is the place to be entertained, empowered, inspired, and feel seen while you're raising small humans. We are your hosts, Morea Malott and Madison Young. Ariel Gore is a memoirist, novelist, nonfiction author, journalist, and teacher. She is the founding editor and publisher of Hip Mama, an alternative press award-winning publication covering the culture and politics of motherhood. Her books include Bluebird, Women, and the New Psychology of Happiness, How to Become a Famous Writer Before You're Dead, The Traveling Death and Resurrection Show, Atlas of the Human Heart, The End of Eve, The Hip Mama's Survival Guide, The Mother Trip, A Guide to Staying Sane in the Chaos of Motherhood, We Were Witches, a Memoir, The Art Life Coloring Book, and the upcoming Hexing the Patriarchy, 26 Potions, Spells, and Magical Elixirs to Embolden the Resistance. She is widely credited with launching the maternal feminism movement. She's a Lambda Literary Award winner and the mother of two children born 17 years apart from one another. Welcome, Ariel. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I have so much that I'd like to talk to you about, and you have so many new and exciting books and projects that you're manifesting, but I'd like to take a moment to just acknowledge the awesomeness of Hip Mama and the movement that you really created surrounding Hip Mama magazine. Could you share with us a little bit about exactly what Hip Mama is and its origin and the inspiration for Hip Mama? Sure. I started Hip Mama as a print zine slash magazine um, as my senior project when I was at Mills College in 1993. Um, and the idea was that, um, you know, I was in college, I was a single mom, and there were no real venues for the kind of things that I was writing and that my friends were writing, which was basically a feminist take on parenting. At first, I thought the the zine would really only appeal to kind of people like me, i.e. young, single moms, maybe urban. Um, but it really quickly expanded from that and um, kind of just worked for people who wanted to tell the truth about parenting, whether they were 
older or married or, you know, had money or didn't have money. Like that wasn't really that demographic that I was originally thinking of wasn't really the point. Um, and so the plan was always that it was going to be a reader written zine. So it was very easy to kind of morph from my original more limited vision to include all kinds of moms and just people who wanted to tell the truth and wanted to stop um, kind of pretending like everything's great in the Christmas letter or now even worse, the daily Christmas letter of social media where everything is just um, happy and perfect and the only problems are, you know, really kind of mundane. Um, So really talking about the deep um, life transition that, that being a parent truly is. So how did you balance actually making that happen while parenting and going to college? Um, well, that was the nice thing about being young is that I didn't have to sleep. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, like I remember very profoundly, like turning 30 and being like, oh my gosh, I can't pull all nighters anymore. Um, but, um, I just put this, you know, the zine kind of came out when it came out. It was roughly quarterly, um, but the readers were pretty chillax around the actual schedule. And um, I just really, I mean, with my whole kind of so-called career, I I work at home. I do a lot of things at the same time. And I, I kind of like that aesthetic in my writing which, you know, at different times has been, you know, you can hear the baby screaming right through the middle of it in a way um, that sometimes my writing has been um, more, again, little vignettes and and stylistic things like that that were actually more reflective of the kind of time I had on my hands, mm. if that makes sense. Like my first kind of long narrative book was Atlas of the Human Heart and my daughter was 12 or 13 when I was working on that and so that was when sort of when I finally had the time to work on a full-length book where the the thread really had to um you know not have a baby screaming right through the middle of it (laughs) so I just have always tried to adapt my work to to work around what's going on in my life. That's, That's a really cool lesson mm-hmm. because it's sort of like you might want to do certain things and yet there's a you're at a particular place, you know, in parenting and in life and we can very easily try and push um, something to happen that we're not really able to do at that moment. But what if we could find a, a, different, uh, a different way to still do something creative? Exactly. I mean, so many people are asked that question, especially of mothers, not so much of fathers. Like, how do you balance your writing and your parenting? Um, and the answer is you you find a way to balance it that's going to work and be fulfilling for you without without dropping the art. But it's it might be different sometimes. When my kids were little I especially when my daughter was little and I had less support I was her only parent um I didn't write at all in the summers 
and I would get really freaked out about that the first few summers um, because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm not writing. I'll never write again. But A, it's the summer and you can have a schedule like that. You know, I don't write in the summer. It doesn't, it's, it's never worked out for me. Um, and also just with parenting in general, it, there are just those few years in the beginning that are so intense. And I feel like a lot of us get so overwhelmed in those years that, and it truly does seem like it's never gonna end <laughs> that, that, moment by moment intensity of parenting um and just to be at least have the tenderness with yourself but also the the knowledge that 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 part of it ends and and you you, you will begin to not have this you know a pre-parenting schedule ever probably um but it, it's not that it's not the end of your creative life <laughs> at all. It's just, again, like you said about, about morphing it and, and figuring out what works when. Your kids are older, right? What are their ages right now? My daughter is 29 and my son is 11. So you're kind of, you know, getting out, like you said, you were writing. I'm out of the woods. (laughs) You're out of the woods. Like you were able to write a novel around 12 or 13. That makes a lot of sense for me. I can sort of see being able to maybe write a novel then. I also always insist on my creative life, whether that's writing really short things um, or what have you. Um, So it's, um, I mean, that's kind of just a self-care thing for me. And just something that my kids know about me, <laughs> um, you know. It's so, how really, much are you in? How much are you involved with Hip Mama right now? What's going on with it? I, I can imagine that that was sort of more central during a period of time when your kids were younger. Yes, um, and it was um, a print magazine until um, I want to say. Uh, four or five years ago, and now it's just online at hitmamazine.com. And we may put out another print issue eventually, um, but print distribution honestly just got too difficult. Plus, you know, when your kids aren't super little, it wasn't something I wanted to edit on a daily basis anymore. So, um, So it's just an online thing now. And when you think back at all of the, um, I mean, it wasn't, it was your writing and a bunch of writing from lots of other people. When you think back on all of those pieces of writing, I'm wondering what your favorite piece you can think of is, and also what you think the most controversial piece that was written about in Hit Mama was. Oh my goodness. Um, we published so much stuff. I think, I always think of a piece um, called anonymous was a mother that was subsequently published with the writer's name marcy shiner um but when we first published it it was anonymous and she was a sex writer and porn writer who had her name on all her sex writing but when she went to write about parenting she in order to tell the truth, she felt like that's where she had to be anonymous, where she could talk about the 
intensity of having a kid with a disability and the intensity of the mistakes that, that you make. Um, looking back, her kids were grown when she wrote this piece, but, you know, looking back and she'd surrendered custody of her kids for a short period of time and and her great regret around that and, and all these, you know, all the the sort of everyday um, heartbreak of parenting, um, I just was quite moved by the, the fact that she had, you know, been so out there with everything else. And then when it came to these things, um, that's when she wanted the cover of anonymity. Um, so that's one piece that was um, really cool. And then, I mean, the most controversial thing was a cover that we um, did where a woman was nursing her yes. baby. I know which one you're uh, going to mention. I love this one. Um, and we ended up putting uh, this big red uh, sticker over um, the newsstand edition of that magazine because the distributors would not carry this breastfeeding picture where it it was clearly less pornographic than a lot of things you see on the cover of Cosmopolitan. But it was, uh, you know, you could see a little nipple anyway. And the child wasn't an infant. That's one thing that upset people is that it seemed like an older child. And um, anyway, on and on, um, people got very upset. (laughs) But then, you know, it also... um, people who are really pro breastfeeding and, and felt refreshed to see a, an older kid breastfeeding on the cover of a magazine. Um, and, and it had this very kind of arty um, quality because the photographer um, is an art photographer. So it, it just had a lot going on that people really loved. Um, so it was just the, it was just the newsstand distributors um, who, couldn't deal with it. What was the name of that artist? She's from Spain, right? She's from Spain, yeah. Um, Anna. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you. It's okay. In a few I, minutes. I mean, I, I remember <laughs> looking at some of her other art and just being so inspired and really loving her work. Interjecting post recording, it is Barcelona based artist Ana Alvarez Erecalde. And breastfeeding in costume, a self-portrait called Symbiosis. And it's on the cover of Hip Mama issue 55. And we yeah. can grab the um, we can grab that cover and put it on our Instagram too for readers to be able to get a look at. Perfect. Cool. And then they can um, then you'll have the name and, and they can check out her other work. Which yeah, is the artist incredible. Work. Well, I know that Madison and I both really want to talk about witchiness today, and that definitely <laughs> seems to be where you are going with the writing right now. Um, we've both read We Were Witches, and um, and we've, t- we've already on the podcast talked a little bit about witchery and parenting and witchery. Um, and there are clearly, you know, many ways to be a witch or a witch mama or a witch parent, as there are as many of us, um, 
But there seems right now to be this giant collective shift toward feminist witchiness these last few years, especially. And I know that so many people uh, are called to explore this energy right now. And, but I've been really thinking of asking those of us who identify that way, you know, what do you think the deep down basics of like what truly makes uh, a woman, a mama, a person, a witch, like what, what calls you to witchiness? What, what, even if you don't do it the way that everybody else does around you, um, what fundamentally makes a person a witch? I wondered what your answer to that question would be. Well, I was drawn to witchcraft and witchiness and magic essentially at the same time I became a mother um, because in our culture, in my experience, that, well, you know, being a girl child at any time and being female at any time in this culture means that your agency and your power is going to be questioned constantly. Um, but being a mother, I found that to be even more intense and almost um, unbearable. Um, and so for me, witchcraft is about or being a witch is about having agency. That's the allure of it. Mm. You have power, you insist on your power, and that doesn't mean that um, you can magically turn the world into utopia instantly. Um, but, you know, it means that you're creating your little utopias and you're expanding them and you're um, really rejecting patriarchy. I mean, it's, it's kind of, to me, the opposite of patriarchy isn't necessarily matriarchy. It's being a witch. Yeah. Um, I have this quote from your book that, uh, it just is right in front of me that makes me, um, that reminds me of what you just said. And it, it comes from, um, meeting in a little store with a witch. And then you were given a meditation in this book, We Were Witches. And it says, mm -hmm. Artemis, sister, make my aim true. Give me goals to seek and the determination to achieve them. Grant me communion with nature. Allow me to live surrounded by plants, animals, and children. Allow me the strength and wisdom to be my own mistress and empower my ongoing sexual liberation. I thought that was very Yay, moving. I'm still for to that. To be your own mistress. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and so everything goes along with with witchiness, right, is your sexuality and being your own mistress and um, something that Vajra Conjure Wright talks about in my new book that's coming out in October called Hexing the Patriarchy is that you can be your own goddess so that if you're, you know, casting a spell and calling on these goddesses and, and maybe you, you don't have the the religious framework to, to believe in a goddess outside of yourself, you can be your own goddess. Like that's fine. Um, and so I also am, have always been drawn to the kind of um, flexibility of witchcraft as I know it. And as I've been taught it, I've studied it in 
really formal traditions, but also in in more experimental and informal traditions. And I like that so far anyway, nobody gets mad at you for kind of, for being experimental, for for allowing it to be a a spirituality or a religion that grows based on kind of what works and what's your experience. It has this incredibly um, personal core of power. I find that there's, you know, in witchcraft, there's also just this, like, amongst all of the different people that practice it, that it's really getting to know and believe in yourself and your own intuition. Um, And I really love that about it. Exactly. This sponsor break allows you to be our sponsor. If you love this podcast, we need your help. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month or for more, get some cool prizes from us. Please go and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash wash your mouth out. Thank you. So (laughs) my eight-year-old this past week just went to their first sleepaway camp, and it was a witch-lit camp, actually, which was super cool. And um, I posted about it, and some of my followers have been asking me for different resources and tips on how to introduce ritual and witchlet skills to their children. Um, I was wondering what are some of the ways that magic and your identity as a witch has interplayed both with your work as a writer and um, in your mothering? Well, I would say it's um, being more and more reflected in my writing more recently. Probably We Were Witches um, being the the first time that I really wrote directly about that. Um, And then with my kids, um, just, I think it's been very um, almost organic um, where my kids are with me most of the time when they were little anyway. And, um, so if I'm going to rituals, I'm bringing them along. I'm insisting that um, my comrades try to make things kid-friendly when possible. I mean, I know that there are sometimes needs for adults-only spaces. I'm not, I get that, too. Um, but when it's not necessary, then why? <laughs> um, this is a religion that... that loves to include elders and and little kids um so so my kids were sort of always uh tagging along with me um and um then you know of course later for a while they don't want to tag along with you anymore but they sort of return to it like you know this kid is bullying me at school like what can i do to protect myself magically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then we start talking about looking at those resources and, and maybe why it's not a good idea to, you know, hex your bullier as, as a first defense, you know, <laughs> maybe, you know, protecting yourself <laughs> in these ways and strengthening yourself in these ways. And then, um, and, and getting, 
more intense as the situation calls for. You know, how do you how do you get a job? Well, you do all these magical things, and then you apply for the job. Um, you know, so so all these things are kind of every day, um, where we're not really separating the spiritual from the practical right. that much. Um, when my son was really little, we had a witch shop here in Santa Fe where I'm living now. And um, so, you know, he just got to um, kind of be a part of that and um, polish the shelves <laughs> um, and see, and see that that magic was also an, a very everyday thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have your Harry Potter and you have your um, more dramatic, magical stories that are excellent. And then there's customers coming in every day. Like, how can I support myself in this custody battle? Um, how can I, um, you know, spice up my passionate life or, or whatever the, the, the really kind of specific and everyday tools that, that people are really looking for. Um, in We Were Witches, there are a couple quotes that stood out for me. Well, there are many, but there's a, a couple here. Motherhood is just a silent code of silence. And mothers are the cultural keepers of the lies. And also, in another section, maybe this could be my new genre, the memo- memoirist novel. My words could form a magical spell, like an alchemical furnace, built with the conscious intention of transmuting shame into power. And I thought that last part was so, um, just amazingly powerful. I feel like you did such a beautiful job in teaching us readers through this memoir the way to use writing and story to morph your shame into something usable. And there was a lot of identification for me, a lot of tears, a lot of catharsis. This podcast that we're doing is definitely born from this idea that there's so much shame in all of the ways that we as individuals might defy prescribed ways to be a mother. Just, you know, whether we might choose to defy those prescribed ways or whether just by being born into the bodies and the cultures and the, um, the classes that we're born into, um, you know, makes it so that we are defying those prescriptions. I, it seems like you would have with children, the ages that you have and all of the years that you have spent mothering, a lot of wisdom on ways big or small that we can move past the shame or tell the shame to fuck off. Right. I'm just wondering <laughs> like what, like if, if, if anything comes to mind in terms of, you know, what we're feeling and how to deal with it and um, how do we move past the shame in all these little ways? Well, I mean, the first thing that I think we're taught and that we learn as mothers is to shut up and to be silent about what's intense about it, um, what's 
over the top joyful about it, all the extremes, which especially early parenthood is all these incredible extremes. Um, is that we're taught, you know, not to a don't complain about it. It's your choice. You you know you got yourself into this mess. Um, and b that you shouldn't act like it's anything that you do is too amazing. People do it all the time. Um, so there's just from every angle this kind of message that to shut up. And I mean, somebody, and I don't know how I feel about this exactly, but there's um, somebody actually on KBOO once when I was listening in Portland, Lisa Loving was talking about that, you know, motherhood is this initiation for women that we don't tell the truth about in the same way that war is this initiation for men that they're not allowed to talk too much about. Mm. Um, and that it struck me as quite thought provoking. I, you know, wouldn't necessarily sign on to it completely, but um, the silences around motherhood are so um, insidiously ingrained and they are a way to um, kind of enforce the patriarchy. Truly. I noticed um, both when I was a new mom and also when I was working with the memories around that to write We Were Witches, um, is that the the people who shamed me actively um, were almost always women. And they were often women in my family. And so this is something that we're taught um, at this very... Um, you know, insidious level because they're, what they're doing is they're enforcing the patriarchy in a way that they've been taught. Um, and I'm sure the imagining is, you know, what Ariel's doing is dangerous. Um, and so the only way that we can protect her um, and maybe if she goes too far, protect ourselves um, is to, is to silence this and to kind of, you know, okay, fine. If you think you're a lesbian, but don't tell anyone. Um, okay, fine. You have this baby, but be really quiet about it. Um, that kind of thing. And it's, um, and you know, it's the sort of thing I try to tease out in the, we were witches book is that, um, is that the female genocide against witches was a part of that. And it's, and so it, you know, teaches grandmothers and mothers to, to shame their children and make sure they, I, you know, for the alleged purpose of keeping them safe from the patriarchy, but it, the effect is um, that it just reinforces it or it, they become, they become the labor force of the patriarchy, you know? Um, And so then the, and then the, Men only have to do it in in really dire situations. They must, you know, beat you um, because the women are doing this kind of soft labor um, to keep you in your place. Um, now I forget what the question was, but um, I just thought that was a really sort of interesting 
slash fucked up thing to explore and and how did we get there and and to what extent is it so in us that um i know a lot of mothers when they're particularly when their daughters are um entering adolescence they find themselves slut shaming their kids completely it's like this script that they've inherited that they haven't had a chance to kind of interrogate and get rid of. Um, and so how do we all perpetuate this? Yeah, um, I think you answered the question <laughs> just oh <good>. by saying, <laughs> just by saying, you know, um, stop, basically stop the cycle of silence, which I think sounds like tell the story, talk about it. Don't shame your children. Exactly. And, you know, um, as a writer, uh, you talk about, you know, I always get the question from writer moms, like, what can you publish? Will it embarrass your children? Will it ruin their lives? Um, and, you know, sometimes you write and publish something that later you kind of regret. And you think, like, gosh, I, you know, I probably didn't have to do that. Um, but it's not the end of the world. There's so many cool things about having a writer or an artist as a parent that I think that it, it outweighs the fact that, you know, if you don't err on the side of caution, you know, you make mistakes sometimes. It's fine. I mean, my, my stepdad who raised me was um, an excommunicated Catholic priest and he had um, a church that was a sort of outsider Catholic church and he gave sermons every Sunday and they always had these personal anecdotes in them. Um, and I definitely remember a few times of being absolutely mortified uh, by something that he would say, you know, he'd mention when we were camping and I went to the outhouse or, you know, something that's sort of innocent, but you're a kid and you're just like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe the whole church thinking about me going to the outhouse. Um <laughs> But, you know, it's like, in hindsight, like that my dad was a writer and um, a spiritual leader was so cool that, you know, a couple of, a couple of outhouse stories, whatever. Um, <laughs> so as a parent, I think it's, it's not really something to worry about as much as people worry about it. Um, I think that children need interesting mothers more than they need um, mothers who never kind of take a risk or make a mistake. I love that. I love that philosophy. And that was definitely one of my questions as well. So <laughs> because I, I write memoir as well. And I know that that's always a bit of a challenge knowing how much to write about our children and the people that we're in relationships with and the people in our lives, um, when that's our work in creating art and in, um, and in writing. Um, I know it's a, a delicate dance. Yeah. And, I mean, the nice, another nice thing about being an artist or a writer is that you are very sensitive, and so you are going to be thinking about these things. I, you know, I don't think it's – there's no shame in, in – weighing these things and thinking about these things. But um, I think it's, um, 
it's often safer than we think to 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 go ahead and and talk about things and go ahead and and tell the truth. So I I just absolutely I really 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 love we were witches. It it's just it's so incredibly intimate and brave and beautiful and fierce and I think it illustrates this complex interwoven identity and personhood of a mother that you don't see very often. I it was so refreshing to read a book that has feminism and queer identity and you having relationships with people of all genders and having a sexuality, like having sexual desire and also being a parent um, and balancing life and your relationship to art. It was um, so complex and um, human and wonderful and beautiful. And and there was that, <laughs> that amazingness. Um, but then also just the format was so incredible and different and... Um, I loved that there were fairy tales, like feminist fairy tales sprinkled throughout and um, and poems and spells. so i'm I'm curious um, in your in your outline and in creating a structure for this piece, it felt so organic in reading it. I was very curious as to how much of it was um, outlined and structured out beforehand and, and, and what your process was like in writing this piece. Well, thank you for your kind words. I'm so glad that you um, connected with the book so much. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's, um about it's set in the early 90s so and i was writing it um in the what around uh 2015 or something so um my daughter who's my daughter in the who's a baby and a toddler in the book was grown um and in some ways, it's a sort. It's a book that I had been trying to write for 25 years, um, but the I wasn't really a good enough writer yet. I think to to um, to trust such an experimental structure. So, in some ways, that that's why it it took a long time. I mean, actual writing only you know maybe took a year and a half. Um, but um, I do uh, outline my work pretty heavily, but I don't necessarily stick to that outline. So, um, and in this book, I I just kind of at first was writing all over the map in terms of um, I wanted it to really engage with this notion of shame. The original mm-hmm. title of the book was shameless but then there's that William H. Show. show came out so <laughs> mm-hmm, I couldn't mm-hmm. do that um, <laughs> um anyway I like the title but um but that's what the original idea was was this was going to be um a book 
based on the idea that um, being in a female body is shamed. Um, and so, you know, what can I kind of draw on to talk about that and think about that? Um, and it was fairly late in the game probably that I that um, I decided to frame it with around the four years that I was in college. Um, and so the chronology of that was not um, that ended up coming sort of organically and then including fairy tales. And that was also around having a little kid at that time. What was I doing? I was studying um, feminist literature and, you know, reading my daughter, the books that the culture told me were appropriate for children. Um, And so it was a, it was a cool time to be a parent too. I mean, I think a lot of um, my peers who have little kids now kind of who went to college around the same time I did um, have a lot of the the same experience of like kind of the anti-patriarchal curriculum of the early 1990s, uh, but they didn't have a baby at that time. Maybe they had a baby later. Um, and so I think a lot of people have really some really similar experiences to the character in that book, but then having them kind of all at once um, made a cool art project for me. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, outline stuff. And then sometimes I'll look back at the outline after a book is done. I'd be like, Oh, you know, I, I really did do that thing that I planned to do, or I really didn't do half the things I planned to do, but it's a way just for a book length project. It's a way for me to at least, um, you know, pretend that I have some control, and you mentioned earlier that um, that you can almost hear a, a, a baby crying throughout some of your your earlier work, um, and and I'm I'm really interested in finding these pockets of time for writing and for art, and I'm always curious what um, what each writer's writing process looks like do you like to write Mm -hmm. out at cafes or in the house or how do you find what is your work schedule look like because I know that that's that always um is so different for each writer I don't do that well writing in cafes um I know it's probably a good idea but um for whatever reason it, it doesn't work that well for me um so I, I do most of my work at home. I've, you know, I've tried a couple of times to get an outside office too, and um, it's it doesn't, for whatever reason, doesn't work for me personally. I like the chaos of having all my books and everything going on and not having to remember that I needed, you know, which book I needed to take with me to the cafe. Um, so um, most of the time I work at home, and I mean, I've done different kind of wacky things over the years to insist on getting that time. There was a couple of years where I woke up insanely early um, every morning to work. Um, there are times when I just kind of stay up insanely late all the time to work. Um, there are times when I just um, 
you know, just find, have another job and find a way to kind of, um, do my own work around that. So it's, I don't really have a, a normal schedule that, that has followed me through the years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now, you know, my daughter is grown and my son is in school and my main um, work besides writing is editing and teaching online. So those are also things I do at home. So it's um, just kind of cobbling it together and always, figuring out a way to insist on my creative life, even though I'm the primary parent and have for most of my parenting life been the primary breadwinner. Um, and so how do you do that? You, it's like, you know, it's like, I, I also, I mean, not when the kids are really little, but like, you know, in general, I take a shower every day. It's like a, a thing that I insist on. So like, how do I insist on my creative life in the same way that I, um, insist on eating every day or, right. or the other things that are, that we take a little more for granted. Um, because, you know, truly the writing that I do, especially the more experimental writing that, um, you're talking about resonating with you is not particularly highly paid writing. <laughs> So there's always so there's always a, a couple of hustles going on. So I know that um, earlier when we were chatting about some of the more controversial work in um, Hip Mama, something also really resonated with me because. So I I work in the field of sexuality and pornography, and I've often said that the greatest taboo that I have taken on is becoming a mother due to mm-hmm. the pushback and challenges I've faced about being uh, being out as a parent and working in erotic film. And I've gathered a general societal opinion that um, I could choose one or the other, be a mom or be a kinky queer sex expert, um, right. but not both. And I, I really love how open you are in, in We Were Witches about your sexual desire and fluidity and sexuality and parenthood, and it's all in one book. Um, I'm curious if you've experienced any pushback for tackling these topics altogether in, in this book um, or, in, or in previous works. Yeah, I would say not now, not with this book, um, because... Um, I'm older, I'm more established, um, I'm not, um, facing anything in family court, um, and those types of things. And I, and, and I even talk about that a little bit in We Were Witches, um, about having to be closeted at times when my daughter was little, um, because, already being a young, single, poor mother, uh, I could have my child taken away from me by the, by child protective services almost for nothing. Um, and so, and because it was, you know, a couple decades earlier, um, people still 
lost custody of their children if they identified it as queer. Um, even in the Bay Area, it wasn't super common. Um, and if you had money, it probably wouldn't, wouldn't happen in the Bay Area at that time. Um, but it, you know, money didn't help 10 years before that. So, you know, we have these, this kind of morphing world and, and self-preservation is super important. It's maybe not the most important thing, but it's, it's really kind of up there. Um, so I feel fine about, you know, sometimes you do have to be closeted. I don't think there's any, um, shame in that. Um, and sometimes, um, it is a, a poor idea to bring attention to things and, you know, in front of people who have power over you. Um, but it, intrinsically in our actual lives, in our actual relationships with our children, in all the ways that they warn us that um, you can't be a sexual being after you have kids, those things aren't true. You know, um, you, especially people who work in um, sex education are often so much better at boundaries um, or they've really thought about these things that they, um, I feel like we are, can be better parents as sex educators. Um, I think, uh, one thing that, and, and doing Hit Mama also, I was, um, fortunate to know a lot of, um, people who are more out there, um, publicly as, queer parents as sex educators and sex educator parents. And something I think it was Joni Blank said, you know, that she had learned was that, in fact, parents of their own children are the worst sex educators. And I thought that was like, that is a cool thing to remember, you know, um, and to 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 work around. Like maybe you're this great sex educator for for everyone else, but when it comes to your own children, maybe you're going to shift that a little bit. Um, so I think, um, it's so complicated, but it's, you know, at least 99% of that perceived conflict between being a sexual being and being a mother are, are just about the power structures that we have to live under. They're, Mm -hmm. they're nothing to do with reality. Or, you know, the real and lived reality. <laughs> you just talked a little bit about kind of some of the stresses and the silences around um, many things. But I'm remembering the time when I was a single parent for a few years and um, was dealing with all kinds of legal issues with parenting plans and custody and, and that feeling that terror of, you know, somebody's always checking up on me. Certainly my ex is. Um, there was a lot of, uh, silence about my parenting at that time, certainly silence about, um, anything I, that might be something that anyone would be in the closet about. I was probably supposed to be in the closet about it because I was a single parent. Um, things like even, um, breastfeeding for as long as I did bed sharing. I noticed those things came up in, in the book, we were witches, And um, one thing I noticed about the way that you talk about parenting in this book, 
as a, a young person, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, um, is you mentioned the this sort of energy of being a young person. And, um, and I noticed that some of the things that come up when you are at the time when I was, when I had a child, which was like 29, where everybody else is having babies, there's so much stress around what parenting philosophies and what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And I really enjoyed reading the story of a younger mom where in many ways things were very challenging for you. And yet in another way, the ease of the relationship between you and your child sounded really beautiful. And also the kind of lack of some of the things that the clients that I work with and the, and the things that I stressed out about, um, like, is it wrong to do this? Is it right to do that? I need to always be keeping up with everybody else. Um, you know, I, I loved in the book how it seemed like because that wasn't your circle of people, you didn't question those things too much. You breastfed into toddlerhood and, Sounds like we're bed sharing a lot of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I work with parents on improving sleep and gentle discipline and potty, and people have very strong opinions about how folks should do these things. There's a lot of shame about, like, am I not getting it right? Did I choose the wrong thing? I'm not doing what my neighbor's doing. Um, and when you had kids at such different times, I think, in your life where you had uh, one child as a, a really young person and then many years later another child, it seems like you would have a bunch of wisdom about the different sets of messages that you might have been getting at those different times about how you should parent and how people are supposed to parent. And I wondered if having those two different perspectives of, of two different times in your life would... Um, give us any advice on, you know, kind of how to navigate these pressures and like, yeah. what was the, what was the difference for you? Well, I mean, you know, when I first had my daughter, I was um, considered very young for where I lived and what, and for my subculture. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the other parents who had kids my daughter's age tended to be older and they tended to have a lot of opinions like you're talking about, but I was not invited into their club. So, you know, mercifully. Um, <laughs> so I was kind of, you know, it was just like, a, so I was sort of the freak um, in that context, which is really freeing, you know? Um, and then when I had my son, maybe I had more, um, opportunity to connect with parents who were the same age, who had a kid the same age, who are maybe um, not struggling as much financially as um, as I had when I when I was super young. Um, but then I, you know, I found that I was kind of not invited to that club either because I, um, you know, I'm of the school of thought that, you know, hardly anyone graduates from high school in diapers. It's, um, you know, in, unless there's a disability thing going on. So don't worry about it. It's going to, it's, it's going to work out, you know? Um, 
sleep like they need to sleep, you know. <laughs> Hardly anyone ever starved with a plate of food in front of them. Um, and so you just kind of um, give your kids the stability of knowing that um, you're going to try really hard to check yourself on violence. You're going to feed them. Um, you're going to refuse to abandon them or, you know, try really hard <laughs> on that. And, and everything else kind of, um, I think kids have a right to who their parents are. Um, and they're not all, you know, some of them are uptight and some of them are not uptight and some of them um, are vegetarian. And, you know, it's not, um, there's one right way to parent. I mean, there's, it's, in some ways I think it's so American to have this um, need to for everyone to assimilate into this certain kind of of a family where the basics are, are really just kind of thinking about things deeply and not being a dick, you know, or when you're a dick, owning it and being like, um, sorry about that. I'm going to work on my anger management issues. I think I love this. Don't be a dick. They're not going to starve. They'll sleep <laughs> eventually. <laughs> those are those are good uh, good basics to take home. Thank you. <laughs> um, you have a new book coming out. Is it October fifteenth? Yes. Okay, October fifteenth is hexing the patriarchy. Twenty six potions, spells, and magical elixirs to embolden the resistance. This is the most exciting book I could think about um, pre-ordering right now, and probably everybody should do that. Um, oh, good. Yeah, where can they pre-order it? Wherever you buy books. Wherever you want to buy books. You can pre-order right. it from IndieBound. You can pre-order it from Powell's. Um, you can go oh, to I your like local options. independent bookstore and ask them to pre-order it for you, wherever you buy books. Would you be willing to read us a little something from this not yet released book? Yeah, I, I'm going to read to you. I think I'm going to read to you from the introduction because it really goes along with the time in my life that we've been talking about and a lot of the um, early parenting stuff we've been talking about. So I'm just going to read you a couple pages from the very beginning. Um, the introduction is called Magical Letters. I formally initiated myself as a witch when I was a 21-year-old single mom surviving on welfare and student loans. The patriarchy had me by the throat in the form of misogynist family court judges, food stamp-cutting governors, and national politicians happy to dehumanize poor women to feed their own greed for power. I felt like I was under legislative, financial, and psychic attack all at once, because I was. I'd been talking to owls since before I could talk to people, and now in an acquaintance's forested backyard, I came upon a deer. When we locked eyes, I decided she was a messenger of the goddess, and I whispered a little prayer. We're up shit creek here. Send help if you can. 
The very next day, in an old-school brick-and-mortar bookstore that smelled of coffee and wet leaves, I happened upon a copy of Witchcraft for Tomorrow by the British witch Doreen Valiente. I read the witch's ballad on the first page, and I thought, count me the fuck in. I followed Doreen's instructions for self-initiation, and I made a plan. I would magically defend myself from the patriarchy, and once I'd recovered my strength, I would go on the offensive. I lived in Sonoma County, California, kind of Witchville Central at the time, and soon enough, I found a few witchy elders to help me on my way. One of the first assignments I got from one of those witchy elders was to create my own alphabet. My own alphabet? I felt a deliciously childish ping in my chest at the idea, like the secret codes I used to make when I was a kid. My elder took a drag from her menthol cigarette, grabbed a handful of tortilla chips, and laughed, just like that, honey. Creating my own secret alphabet, painstaking and fanciful, I mean, how do you decide what your W will look like, came as excellent relief from the daily work of mothering and adulting in a world that hated mothers and only seemed to value adults as consumers. Maybe my O would look like my baby's satisfied belly. My Z could be a lightning bolt to zap feminist sense into the people who had power over me. My eye would be a raised revolutionary fist with a great blood red manicure. Hmm. My toddler daughter was learning her English ABCs at the time. So we sat in our sunny dining nook learning to spell and write spells together and everything smelled of oranges. I was in college then too and working nights with my Chinese professor on an ambitious English translation of Nu Shu, the secret written language used exclusively by women in 19th and 20th century southern China when women were excluded from male literacy. Nu Shu's script was phonetic, unlike the written patriarchal Chinese I'd been studying since I was a kid, and passed down from mother to daughter. Women used Nu Shu to write and embroider songs, poems, oracles, gossip, and congratulations and condolences after weddings. The China Daily called Yang Huanyi the last living woman who'd grown up using Nushu, the oldest inheritance of probably the world's only female-specific language. But now it occurred to me that women and poor people had always created their own alphabets and their own languages when the languages of their fathers or those in power were turned against them or forbidden altogether. It made sense to start with an alphabet. I would soon learn to spell out spells. I'd curse the family court judges in cursive. I'd write a new future beyond these dehumanizing systems I'd been trained to blame myself for getting snared in. Yang Huan Yi died in 2004. Only scholars know her matrilineal language now. But I refuse to believe that only tender and good things can vanish. Instead, let's vanquish racism, misogyny, capitalism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and exploitation on skills both micro and monstrous. The patriarchs in power want us to believe that boys will be boys and racist dog whistles are legitimate campaign platforms and unequal pay has some non-bigoted logical explanation. But we see through that gaslighting bullshit. 
we're spelling out our resistance. And then the introduction goes on, but the book is this um, is set up as this alphabet. So um, the you know A is for ancestors, and um, I write about that, and then I I have. 26 other witches who contributed spells. So Nisha Powell um, wrote in the ancestors chapter about um, kind of connecting with your ancestors to write a spell against white supremacy. And then uh, B is for binding. So uh, Lassara Foxfire Allen, who's um, Mm -hmm. a witch in Northern California um, wrote a spell about binding the, how to bind the past. Um, and then C is for conjure and MK Chavez, a poet in Berkeley, um, has this incantation, um, to wear down the patriarchy slowly. Uh, and so there are all these different spells and some of them are, are super directed and aggressive, um, at certain power structures. And some of them are more, uh, personally emboldening, um, and altogether, I think we're just going to pull the plug on all the patriarchal bullshit. Oh, I love it. We need this more than ever. Uh, do you think that uh, this book would be appropriate for kids like nine and up who are really into spells and into um, social justice? Well, the one thing my son does not like about my writing is that I do use the F word. Um, not not wildly, but when when I feel it's necessary. <laughs> so, um, but he doesn't like that about living with me either. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's something he's had to to learn to accept about his mother. Um, so, you know, there's some f bombs in the book, um, but other than that, um, um, it's totally appropriate. Oh. I don't. I mean, I don't have as much of a potty mouth as as most of the people in high offices in this country. So, hey, Maria, you think yeah. maybe maybe we can get a little elementary school homeschool feminist coven going on between our kids? Between our two kids? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think for we have sure. our textbook. I also feel like here I'm got. I, you were mentioning the the witchy school, um, the witchy camp. And I was thinking, oh gosh, my daughter and her friends. I'm going to have to host a witchy camp this summer at my house. <laughs> nice. Going to have to happen. So, um, fixing the patriarchy is out October 15th. People can pre-order it. Um, Powell's online, right? They could probably pre-order it there. Um, I'm super excited for the book. Me too. I can't wait. Um, Ariel, one last question. Um, what is the most challenging part and your favorite part of parenting? Oh, my goodness. Um, huh. Well, I mean, I think that the most challenging part is what we've been talking about. It's the, the messages that you get from the world and 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 stepping away from those and um, saying, you know, okay, I'll conform in the ways that I absolutely have to. Um, but, um, you know, so that, that kind of tension I think is, is 
always challenging the the kind of you know what Adrian Rich refers to more as the institution of motherhood, um, as opposed to the real experience of it, which is sometimes extremely challenging. Um, you know, if you're trying to keep your kids alive, and and either they or the world around us seems hell bent on on destruction. Um, but the the for me the real unlived part where we're just you know fucking around in the garden or walking in the rain. Um, um, that kind of thing. I enjoy cooking with my kids. You know, just the the sort of everyday real life of family life is really. Um, brings me so much happiness and um it's stuff you know it's definitely weighed down by this this whole world that hates mothers it's really and and kind of hates children um and requires their conformity to their gender assignments um you know both my kids are um you know, my daughter is assigned female and identifies as female. My son was assigned male and identifies as male. But even so, like the the you you just watch the world put the pressure on on them and what that should mean for their personality. It's just devastating. Um, you know, I, my son went to this sort of progressive elementary school in Oakland, and I remember. He was probably five or six, and the, he hurt his finger, and the nurse said, oh, here's a blue Band-Aid. And then he mm-hmm. said, oh, well, actually, I should give you a choice between a pink and blue Band-Aid. And Max said, I'll have pink. And, and the nurse was like, you do you, boy. And, and then he's like, I meant blue. And it was just, it was over. Like he, in an actual, like, progressive environment, he had still, that was it, like no more pink for Max. Um, and, you know, it pains him as well. And he's like, why are, why can girls wear fun and silly clothes, you know? It's like, and he's like, yeah, but I can't, you know, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so it's, you know, that kind of thing. I think it's just devastating. And, and you want to, you want to go move to some island where they're still, playing free to be you and me. Right. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It was Thanks lovely to hear everything that you have to say about witchery and parenting and the writing process. And um, so I want to remind everybody to um, pre-order Hexing the Patriarchy. And in the meantime, you can buy a copy of We Were Witches, which we highly recommend. Um, I recommend it so much to the point where I can just tell people that I feel like I've been ruined for books for a while um, because of this. Like, it just is that good that I feel like, oh, I don't want to read the next thing because it's not going to be that good. <laughs> so, um, I am still reading other things, but, you know. That's it's, such it's a mixed good review. <laughs> Let's just say, if you only have time to read one book this spring. <laughs> I'm reading other things. Well, the other thing is that um, I also I actually loved um, 
the, the second time around, I kind of wanted to read parts of it with the audible. So I kind of wanted to hear your voice. And I also really recommend that. Um, and there's sort of nothing like hearing that, you know, when it's a memoir. I feel really love memoir in that form. Um, if you're a writer especially, I would love for folks to go to arielgore.com. Sign up for your Saturday morning writing prompts, which I just started getting. Oh, and good. the first one, I just got one and it's like, okay, that's exactly what I need. That's blowing my mind already. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> something about monsters. I'm really excited to get into it. Um, so, yeah, for the writers that are listening to us, this is a way that you can kind of keep Ariel Gore in your life every week, um, even when you're done reading all of the books. <laughs> thank you so, so much, Ariel. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. You've been listening to Wash Your Mouth Out Podcast. You can find us on the web at washyourmouthoutpodcast.com. Come follow us on Instagram at washyourmouthoutpodcast and on Twitter at mouthoutpodcast. Wash Your Mouth Out! If you love this podcast, we need your help. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month, or for more, get some cool prizes from us. Please go and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash washyourmouthout.